from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Do Lord, do Lord, do remember me. Do Lord, do Lord, do remember me. Do Lord, do Lord, do remember me. Oh, do Lord, remember me. Oh, when mother don't you Greetings from the Library of Congress, and welcome to African American Passages, Black Lives in the 19th Century. This is a podcast that draws from the Library of Congress's manuscript collections to explore African American history in the era of slavery, the Civil War, and emancipation. My name is Adam Rothman. I teach history at Georgetown University, and I'm currently a distinguished visiting scholar at the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. In this episode of African American Passages, we will be tracing the long journey of a remarkable man named Omar ibn Said. Omar's autobiography, written in Arabic, was recently acquired by the Library of Congress as part of a unique and important collection of documents. Omar himself was born in West Africa in 1770. At the age of 37, he was captured in war, sold to slavers, and shipped across the Atlantic Ocean to Charleston, South Carolina. He lived the rest of his long life enslaved in the United States and never saw freedom again. Yet despite this ordeal, Omar managed to leave his mark on history by writing an autobiography and other letters as well, which have survived. He made an impression in his own time and now again in ours. To talk about the long journey of Omar ibn Said, I'm joined by two distinguished guests. The first is Mary Jane Deeb, who is the chief of the African and Middle Eastern Division of the Library of Congress. Mary Jane has been responsible for the acquisition, preservation, and processing of Omar ibn Said's autobiography and related materials here at the library. And joining us by phone from New York is the eminent historian Dr. Sylvian Duf. Sylvianne has written many books on Africans in the Atlantic world, including Servants of Allah, African Muslims Enslaved in the Americas, which was published in 1998 and is now considered a classic in the history of slavery. She was the first director of the Lapidus Center for the Historical Analysis of Transatlantic Slavery at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture at the New York Public Library. These are two real experts who can teach us a lot about Omar and his world. And I'm excited to have them here today. So let me turn to Mary Jane Deeb first and ask her about this extraordinary collection that now resides at the Library of Congress. Mary Jane, what are these materials? Well, there are 42 uh, items. And those 42 items are clustered around the autobiography of Omar ibn Said. So Omar ibn Said is the manuscript, the pièce de résistance, if you want, uh, of the collection. It is his biography written in Arabic, and uh, it is unique in the sense that it is the only known existent uh, biography in Arabic from uh, by a a slave. Uh, 
Well, and uh, I know that Sylviane is going to talk more about it. So yeah. Well, let me let me interrupt you there. I'm mm -hmm. so excited. I'm going to be interrupting everybody all sure. the time because I sure. can't. I have so many questions. Uh, I can't hold myself back. So let's just let's just focus on this autobiography. How long is it? Um, when was it written? Okay, it's not very long. It's uh, 15 pages. Mm -hmm. And it begins with a prayer. It begins with a verse from the Quran. The interesting thing is what verse it begins with. And it's called Surat al-Mulk. Surat al-Mulk, Mulk means dominion or ownership. And it's interesting that he would start his biography quoting a verse of the Quran that deals with ownership. And in Islam, ownership is only God. Everything belongs to God, nothing really belongs to man. So it's, an, it's a way, if you want, of pointing to the slave owners that really they have no right to own slaves. He never says it. He just, he just puts this verse of the Quran in it. And in and of itself, it's very symbolic. Um, it is only 15 pages long. Uh, it uh, speaks highly of his present owner, of his current, uh, current owner then. Uh, but also it tells a little bit about his own uh, background. And I know that Dr. Uh, Sylvain Duf will talk more about it. But he does speak about um, intertribal warfare in, uh, in the area between Senegal and Gambia. And he talks about coming to America at the age of 37, <laughs> which, if you think about it, at the turn of the 19th century, was quite a older uh, um, age yeah. for a man to be captured and brought in. Fascinating. Uh, we'll get into his biography uh, in, in a minute because he lived quite an extraordinary life to get to the point where he could write an autobiography in Arabic as an enslaved person mm -hmm. in North Carolina. And I think the year of the autobiography is 1831, is that Correct, right? Correct, yes. Yeah. So let me ask you one more question about this manuscript. Um, what condition is it in? Uh, is, it on, is it written on paper? Yes. Uh, how, how has it managed to survive? 180 well, years. Yes, uh, it is written on paper. It was very brittle, very fragile. Uh, the paper is not of particularly good quality. It was what he was he had available then. Uh, what is interesting is that it was it was kept. It was preserved from owner to owner. I think that people realize the importance of this manuscript and kept it and preserved it. And of course, by the time it came to the library, the first thing we did was to send it to preservation because we wanted to make sure that it would be, uh, uh, it would reach a stable condition. It would be fit for people to look at. And uh, the uh, preservation has already taken place. We're also scanning it so that uh, people will be able to have access to it digitally from any place uh, around the country and around the world. And scanning, of course, and digitizing and, and making it accessible is a way of continuing the preservation. But each page has been treated 
Every page has been studied in terms of the paper, the ink, the condition in which it is in. It has been repaired, and um, and it's a labor of love. Yes. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty remarkable. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's remarkable that it's it's survived to this day, uh, and I think it's also extraordinary the that. Uh, the steps that the library is taking will guarantee that 180 years from now, uh, people will still be able to to read and learn from it. Uh, a question for um, Sylvian. Uh, this is not an unknown document, right? This is something that has been known to scholars of the history of slavery for some time. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Um... First of all, I mean, the, this, the manuscript itself um, reappeared um, around, I think it was in 1996 or 97. I remember that uh, it was at the time, actually, that I was writing my book, Servants of Allah, and I went to the auction, um, hoping that I could buy it, and uh, it was much too expensive for me. Um, but, um, so it was known at I mean, we knew that, it, you know, it was there um, since then, but even before that, it had been written about uh, in the 19th century uh, by a number of people, and it had been translated, uh, I think it was in, 18, in 1848. Um, so there were records of this autobiography, from really kind of the start, because um, as mentioned, it was written in 1831, but it was sent in 1836 to another um, African Muslim. And so that was recorded as well, and then it was sent to somebody else. And then, and again, you know, there were, um, there were uh, writings about this um, document. So it's been known for many, many years. That, it sounds like the, the autobiography, the afterlife of the autobiography is almost as interesting as the life of its author, Omar Ibn Said. And I think that's one of the remarkable things about some of these arch archival collections and manuscripts. They have a history of their own above and beyond uh, the history of their initial production. Yes, um, uh, absolutely. And this is... You you know, this is one manuscript, and it's a very, very important one. Uh, but I just want to um, to stress that it's, you know, and it's, um, you know, it's the only autobiography written, as we know, written by uh, an enslaved African Muslim that is still extant. Um, um, but there are many other manuscripts written by African Muslims who were enslaved in different parts of the Americas that are still, uh, that are still extant. Hmm. So it's really part of a, a transatlantic and uh, pan-American story of uh, uh, enslaved African Muslims in the Americas, is that right? Absolutely. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I want to get into uh, Omar Ibn Said's life, uh, because his, his biography is, is uh, revealing, and it's interesting, and it, it takes us into the experience of uh, captivity and the Middle Passage and the shock of adjustment to life as an enslaved person 
in America. And I think it might help uh, for our, our listeners to just hear, at least in translation, some of the literal words uh, that uh, Ibn Said wrote about his life. So I'm going to quote a passage and then, Sylvian, maybe ask you to give us some context. Uh, so after the after the the transcription of the passage from the Quran, uh, Omar ibn Said gets into his own biography, and it and it starts this way. First of all, he he apologizes. He says, uh, "You asked me to write my life. I'm not able to do this because I've I've much forgotten my own as well as the Arabic language. Neither can I write very grammatically or according to the true idiom." So. He's, uh, he starts with a, a caveat that gives you a sense of maybe what has been lost linguistically in his, um, in, his, uh, in his middle passage. But then he says, or then he writes, My name is Omar ibn Said. My birthplace was Futur between the two rivers. Uh, Sylvian, where is that? So um, Omar was born in 1770. Um, in 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 Futatoro, that's what you know. Um, that's the real name, Futatoro, which is in northern Senegal, which is right on the river uh, uh, Senegal, and um, it's um, it's a region that has been um, kind of the cradle of Islam in the region. Uh, Islam started to spread in Futatoro. Um, around the, I mean, it, it started really in the 8th and 9th century, but it really, really spread around the year 1000. So, uh, Futatoro is really uh, considered really the, cra- the cradle of Islam in that part of West Africa. Hmm. And when he says between the two rivers, he means the Senegal and Gambia rivers, correct? Certainly, yes. Yeah. So uh, he goes on to talk a little bit about his his youth uh, and early life in um, in that in that country, and he writes that um, he basically uh, was in school for twenty five years, which seems like a long time. It's like he must have come out with a PhD, I think, um, and that certainly was where he must have learned to read and write in his in his studies. But what what was it about? Um, about uh, West African society in the late 18th century that might have allowed uh, Ibn uh, Said to, to become a scholar, to become literate? Well, first of all, um, you know, he said that he started school at six, and this is, that's the, the age where uh, boys and girls go to, uh, to, to um, Quranic school and start, you know, to learn, to recite, and to write the Quran. So, he had kind of a normal, um, uh, you know, uh, um, oh, sorry, I need to rephrase that. Okay. So he has, you know, he's, he's the way that he learned and the length of time is was kind of the normal thing when you went into higher Islamic studies. Uh, that took a long time. And... Um, one of the things also that he writes about is that he actually traveled to acquire that learning. 
uh, because he said that, you know, he, he studied for 25 years and then he came back to Futa. Mm-hmm. And so he came back to Futa around 1801 when he was 31. And uh, yes, you know, that's kind of the normal, um, the normal way of uh, studying when you go into uh, Islamic higher studies. Yeah. You've actually written about Futa in that period, um, the late 18th and early 19th century, and uh, uh, it's quite, it seems to be quite a remarkable place where the kingdom of Futa was, uh, in a sense, a kind of anti-slavery kingdom for Muslims. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, about that milieu. Yes, so there was a revolution, really, um, in the 1770s, in Futa, and it became a Muslim theocracy. Mm. And it was opposed to the transatlantic slave trade. And so, you know, for a number um, uh, of time, the leader, Abdul Kader Khan, uh, forbade the, the slave trade through Futa Toro. And he actually um, also, of course, he also forbade the uh, the trade in Muslims because uh, Islam forbids the enslavement of free Muslims. So there was really um, a fight between the French, where um, where uh, um, and the British were organizing the slave trade from the east to the coast, and. Um, uh, uh, Futatoro was absolutely uh, opposed to that. Hmm. I'm really fascinated by the um, the, the revolutionary quality of, and anti-slavery quality of uh, Futatoro. When we think about, for the most part, when scholars of Atlantic history talk about the revolutionary Atlantic, they're talking about or writing about the United States and France and Haiti. But normally, people aren't writing about West Africa. But to think about West Africa as having a revolutionary moment as well as the the rest of the Atlantic world is is quite is quite striking. And to think about Omar ibn Said as traversing these different Atlantic revolutions um, that and that end up with him enslaved in Carolina, it's really um, uh, it, it really make, makes you think about the the patterns of revolution um, transnationally. So then we come to this pivotal moment in Omar ibn Said's life, and this is how he describes it, at least in translation, in his autobiography. He writes, Then there came to our place a large army who killed many men and took me and brought me to the great sea and sold me into the hands of the Christians who bound me and sent me on board a great ship, and we sailed upon the great sea a month and a half when we came to a place called Charleston in the Christian language. And that is how, that is, that's all that Omar ibn Said says about his experience of being captured in war, enslaved, sold, transported across uh, the ocean, and uh, sold again in Carolina. Um, it seems such, so compressed. It seems like there's so much that he's not saying in that sentence. But what is he telling us there about his experience of becoming enslaved? Well, actually, mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah. Um, actually, he, you know, he's very succinct, but mm. 
uh, we know exactly what is writing about. In 1807, uh, there was a war between the, uh, the Muslim theocracy of Futatoro and Karta, which was a non-Muslim Bambara kingdom in the east. And uh, Karta, made of, as Omar uh, wrote, made of infidels, invaded part of, of Futa. The leader, Abdelkader Khan, was killed, and that's the war that Omar refers to, and that's when he was made a prisoner. And he writes that he was marched to the sea, which uh, we know that, uh, that Khan was killed in April, which is the, uh, during the dry season. And Omar was marched to the coast because it was the dry season and ships could not come up the Senegal River. So we know exactly, you know, when he was taken uh, a prisoner. And what is also um, uh, very interesting is that 1807 was the last year of the legal slave trade, which was, which, uh, which was abolished. And uh, uh, the end was to take effect on January 1st, 1807. And there were three ships that left Saint Louis uh, in Senegal, one is in September, one in October, one in November. And so Omar would have been on one of those three ships that arrived in Charleston. And um, so he was one of the last Africans brought through the legal slave trade, and there were about 385 people who arrived from Senegal um, uh, on those three uh, ships. Hmm. Well, I can't, it's, it's hard to, it's, it's remarkable that you can actually pinpoint his arrival to one of three slaving vessels. That's, I wish we knew exactly which one, but I guess we'll have to settle for that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> wow. Um, so when he arrives in, uh, in Charleston, uh, his, his, his initial arrival is quite interesting, as he explains it in, in his autobiography. He says that initially he is purchased by a bad man. He, he calls him a, a complete infidel, a man named Johnson, who put him to, put him to work, uh, put him to hard labor, which uh, Omar Ibn Said, being a kind of a scholar, I guess, was not accustomed to. So he rebelled against it, and he actually ran away from his first owner. And uh, he wanders around for several weeks until he's finally basically taken up, arrested, in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, where he's put in jail. And then according to at least one account, while he's sort of languishing in jail in Fayetteville, he finds some charcoal in the jail and starts writing uh, in Arabic on the walls of his cell. And uh, you know, speaking a language that nobody can really understand, um, but finally, somehow, um, that those communication barriers break down, and um, he is eventually taken out of the jail by a man named uh, James Owen, or Jim Owen, who uh, is from a fairly prominent North Carolina family, 
His brother, John Owen, uh, goes on to become governor of North Carolina. So they take him out of jail. And uh, he, uh, he basically becomes the property of Jim Owen. Now, there's a very poignant, and, and I guess on some level, um, Omar ibn, ibn Said, he seems to be grateful to Owen for rescuing him from this jail. And, uh, but before he's really rescued, there's a possibility that he's going to be returned to Charleston. Um, uh, uh, Omar ibn Said says in his autobiography, uh, you know, uh, I, before, maybe after, I came into the hand of Gen General Owen, a man by the name of Mitchell came to buy me. He asked me if I were willing to go to Charleston City. And, and this, then we get one of the most poignant moments in the whole autobiography where Omar Ibn Said writes, I said, no, 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 no. I'm not willing to go to Charleston. And at that moment, he makes the choice to, to stay with, such a, a choice such as it is, to stay with Jim Owen. But you, you get the sense from that 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 he really dreaded Charleston, that Charleston was this, was this pit of evil, of, he uses the word infidelity, uh, of, of unreligion. And I think that that's a really crucial moment in, uh, in Omar ibn Said's life. And from then on, for the next 50 years, he stays with the Owen family until his death. And I just, you just think about the, the kind of adjustment that, the, that Omar ibn Said had to make from his existence, from his life in uh, Futa Toro to being an enslaved uh, African, alone, not speaking English in, in North Carolina. And I guess that raises the question of what, what it would have been like uh, for somebody like him to end up as a, you know, a stranger in a strange land like... Um, like North Carolina. And, and Sylvan, you've written about the experience of enslaved African Muslims in the United States. Uh, are there any you know, common, um, common patterns to their, their ability to, to survive, to get along in this, in this place? Yes, it, it kind of all just depended on a number of factors. First of all, you know, if there were several of them, you know, at this, you know, in the same place, or if they were isolated. And um, but one of the things that you know they all went through is that they found themselves in a Christian country, mm. uh, as Omar said, um, and it's also a country that um, that um, had kind of a negative view of Islam and Muslims, and had that, you know, for a very long time. Um, there was also the, another thing that, uh, that kind of put them, you know, on a different um, uh, level than a lot of other people. Many of them, like Omar, could read and write, and some could read and write very well. Some wrote Korans. Uh, as well as manuscripts of 100 pages, um, they were they had been intellectuals in their, you know, in um, in their pre previous lives. They found themselves unable to continue, uh, of course, 
Um, some uh, were uh, able to organize the, themselves in, you know, like uh, in Brazil, in Trinidad, in uh, in Jamaica, in Peru, um, to organize themselves, you know, to form kind of form communities and share, um, you know, the uh, kind of a, you know, as much of their previous life as they could. Um, Fasting for Ramadan, uh, for example, praying, uh, writing, um, you know, but for probably most of them, it was a very, very difficult um, uh, time, um, of course. And there were also the attitude of the owners, which was kind of a two different attitudes. Uh, some owners who knew that the Muslims were Muslims and could read and write, sometimes took advantage of that and put them in uh, in position um, uh, as dr- drivers, uh, uh, for example, which is, you know, to uh, actually um, be in charge of the other people who were uh, enslaved. But others were actually kind of... Um, uh, very um, uh, worried about the fact that they had people who could read mm-hmm. and write and had, you know, this um, religion that uh, that they, they saw as opposed to their own. Yeah. And, and I, I, I'd like to add to this that at that time also there was a lot of ignorance about Islam. Mm-hmm. And the fact uh, was brought home to Theodore Dwight, who was um, the uh, founder, or one of the founders of the American Ethnographic Society, and who begins collecting um, uh, the writings of Omar ibn Said and, and of others, and wants to have them translated. And the reason is, that Theodore Dwight, as many others on the East Coast in the United States, uh, were against slavery. Uh, They also wanted to educate the American public about Islam and about West Africa. And uh, this is the reason why the collection that we have acquired here at the library is not only um, the autobiography of Omar ibn Said, but it's a, it's an entire collection of 42 documents, uh, most of which were put together by Theodore Dwight in his attempt to educate Americans at that time and to let them know that Africa had a long civilization and a long uh, tradition of a written culture that went, as you pointed out, Sylvian, uh, over a thousand years. And so he brings together these materials that are in uh, in Arabic about Muslims and goes to uh, some um, Arabs from the Middle East, but they really are um, Americans um, who served in the in the region and whose knowledge of Arabic enables them to translate to make these materials, not only that of Omar ibn Said, but others like Mohammed Dekker, available to Americans in an attempt to let them understand what Islam is about and also um, the level of uh, sophistication 
and uh, education of Africans, not only in West Africa, but in other parts of Africa as well. Mary Jane, that's a great point. Uh, Theodore Dwight writes an essay in 1864 in a journal called the Methodist Review, where he writes about some of these different literate uh, African Muslims that he had encountered and corresponded with and, and received manuscripts from. And in that article, Dwight writes, among the victims of the slave trade, among us have been men of learning and pure and exalted characters who have been treated like beasts of the field by those who claimed a purer religion. So you're absolutely right. He was really trying to vindicate a kind of African character against the, the pro-slavery racism, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely. Um, and I think... Uh, both, Mary Jane, what you're saying, and Sylvain, what you're saying, uh, lead us into a, a, another sort of dimension of Omar ibn Said's life after he sort of becomes settled uh, in North Carolina in the household of the Owens. He becomes um, something of um, a celebrity in, these, in a certain intellectual and political milieu in the United States, a milieu of people who are interested especially interested in, um, in colonizing free people of color and slaves in West Africa and bringing uh, what they saw as civilization and Christianity to West Africa. And th these people, like Theodore Dwight, but other people especially connected with the American Colonization Society, sort of get wind of Omar ibn Said, and they begin to take an interest in him. So, for example, I think one of the first signs of that interest comes in 1819 when um, uh, a, basically a letter from Omar ibn Said ends up in the hands of Francis Scott Key, the author of the, our national anthem, who was also a member of the Colonization Society. And uh, Key learns his story. And Key actually sends two copies of the Bible in Arabic to uh, Omar ibn Said uh, for, um, you know, for his use. And many of the, of the stories about Omar ibn Said after that make a point to say that those became his treasured, um, treasured possessions. Uh, and that's also part of the story of Omar ibn Said's conversion. Because he arrives in the United States as a Muslim but according to many accounts, and these are contested by scholars in ways we can talk about, he converts to Christianity. He writes this in his autobiography in 1831 that he had, uh, that he had become a Christian, basically. Um, although he continues to write um, verses from the Koran. So he's, he never completely severs himself from, from Islam. But he clearly has sort of entered a Christian world there's, there's a record that he was baptized at the First Presbyterian Church in Fayetteville in 1820. And then when the Owens moved to Wilmington in the late 1830s, he moves with them, and he becomes a member of the, of the Presbyterian Church in Wilmington. So, I mean, he may be straddling two worlds, but it's clear that, uh, at least in the eyes of many of the people who found him interesting, many of the white Christian Americans who found him interesting, he, he was interesting because he had converted to Christianity. At least that's what they thought. Yeah, I mean, as I, as I read his, uh, his statements, again, as you point out, he is straddling both and trying to 
find a middle ground. And I, again, it's more a, um, more a feeling than, than anything else. That is, I actually trying to find what is in common between Christianity and Islam. Mm. And even when he translate, translates the Lord's Prayer, um, it has a rhythm and has a sense which is similar to some of the writings of Muslim writings. Uh, so I, the feeling that I got, and I don't know, Silvian, uh, you know, I'd be interested in what you think too, um, is that he was uh, trying to find the common ground between his original beliefs as a Muslim and the Christian beliefs of uh, people like the Owens, whom he admired um, and uh, felt were kind to him. How do you see it, Sylvian? Yes, I, um, I agree. I think, you know, first of all, uh, the Secretary of the American Colonization Society reported in 1837 that Omar, and I, and I quote, retained a devoted attachment to the faith of his fathers and deemed a copy of the Koran in Arabic his richest treasure. Mm. Omar also, in his autobiography, writes that um, he loves, you know, I love to read the great Koran. Um, he also, um, uh, I think his, his autobiography is ambiguous. Mm. Uh-huh. He, as you, as, as you mentioned, uh, Mary Jane, he writes the Lord's Prayer. He also says that, you know, before, you know, uh, I prayed like this, and, you know, he explains, and he, he writes about Islam, you know, the, the five pillars of Islam, uh, etc. And, and then he said, you know, now I pray like this, and he quotes, you know, uh, I mean, and he writes the Lord's Prayer. But it is ambiguous, mm-hmm. and the fact that he starts, you know, he opens his autobiography with, 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 with Surat and Muk, you know, all of this, to me, points to this balancing act. Mm. But I also think that if he had converted, really, I mean, if he had really converted and, and uh, had become, you know, a real Christian, his autobiography would not be ambiguous. Mm. It would be very clear. Yeah. And it's not. And the fact that it is ambiguous mm-hmm. and that it starts with a surat from the Quran, instead of, for example, writing a, 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 you know, an excerpt from the Bible or the Gospel, all of these tell me that, uh, like other Muslims did in the same circumstances, he converted, he kind of, I would say, you know, uh, falsely con- converted. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, let's not forget that he was still enslaved, and he remained enslaved for the rest of his life. Yeah. He died a slave in 1863. Mm-hmm. And the, the, um, he writes in his autobiography that, you know, Jim Owen and his wife loved, you know, to read the Bible to him, you know, and so on and so forth. So to actually, you know, remain the good graces of his owners and all of all the, the people, you know, the missionaries and others who have been good to him and have helped him, he has to, um, you know, to kind of, um, you know, to tell them, well, yes, you know, I'm one of you, 
but you also talked about, you know, the Christian country, the Christian mm. language, the Christian people, as if, you know, it is not part of that. Yeah. And in, a, in addition to the text, the Arabic text that he writes, his, his, um, the material that, that, he, that he writes uh, includes these, uh, these sort of visual, I don't know exactly how to describe them, uh, these sort of icons that uh, appear to be a kind of um, amulets or they have some kind of ma- are supposed to have some kind of magical quality that are actually rooted in um, a, West a-, a West African Islamic practice. Right, Sylvian, um, yes. and so that suggests also that you know he hasn't left everything behind. No, he has not. And actually, you know, when we also look at his last known uh, manuscript, was written in 1857, which is which is what Al Nasser, which is the victory. Um, you know, it's it's a short uh, it's a short surah which. And, you know, it's with, with, when God's help and victory come and you see people embrace God's faith in mutual to give glory to your Lord and seek his pardon, he's ever disposed to uh, mercy. This is, again, you know, this is his last known uh, text. And, again, it's a surat from the Quran. It's not, you know, an excerpt from the Bible. Um, I just want to... We don't have a whole lot of time left, so I just wanted to, to turn to one other kind of source that we have about Omar ibn Said. There are two photographs of him, as far as I can tell. Um, and uh, I, I would just, uh, Sylvian, I don't know, you may, if you have them uh, available or you may remember them, uh, Mary Jane and I are looking at one of them right now. Of um, he's, an, he's an old man, he's sitting down, he's holding on uh, to a cane, in one hand, and I just wonder what you see in that photograph. Well, I see a Muslim, hmm. and all the um, all the uh, uh, images of Omar that exist. He either is always uh, his head is uh, is always covered. He is either yeah. as you know, kind of a what could pass for a skull cap or a mm-hmm. turban mm-hmm. or. Or he has also um, uh, the same kind of hat that another um, an, uh, uh, an, another Muslim whose portrait was done in Maryland uh, has. So um, and he's you know he has this very buttoned up uh, kind of coat you know very uh-huh. covered. Yeah. And um, again you know that's our Muslim dress. So to me, that's another indication uh, of his remaining Muslim. Well, for for a man who never made his way uh, back to freedom, Omar ibn Said left quite a quite a paper trail. He left quite a quite a mark on history, and now some of that history is is here at the Library of Congress. And I wonder, um, Mary Jane and Sylvian, why why do you think it's important? For this material to be preserved, to be accessible to the public, what what lessons does Omar Ibn Said's life and his legacy you know, leave for us today? Yeah. I want to say uh, a couple of things about how we acquired it, yeah. and it leads to the, precisely that. Mm. Um, we acquired it in June 2017. We acquired the 42 items. 
uh, and it, but it first came to our attention at the library in 2002, 15 years ago. Uh, well, uh, more than that, yeah, mm. uh, 16 years ago, when we organized a conference on Islam in America. And uh, at that conference, Silvian was there, and so were a number of other people. But one of the people who was there and uh, was Derek Joshua Beard. And he was an artist and a collector who brought with him the manuscript of Omar ibn Said, which he had purchased at the Swan Gallery in New York in 1997. I think this is when you went, Sylvian. Mm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, uh, That's right. And Derek, <laughs> Derek purchased it at that point. And he displayed it at this conference. And in a way, he was documenting that the first Muslims who came to America were, in fact, the, the, the people who were brought from uh, West Africa as slaves uh, to the United States. So the first ones were, uh, were from Africa. The interesting thing is that Beard, uh, at that time, at the conference, had said, this manuscript needs a home, and it should be at the Library of Congress. We remember that very well. Beard remained in touch with us over the years. And as late as 2015, he, had, he was African-American, he became Muslim, mm. and he was known as Tariq Suleiman. And he stated in an interview in 2015 that he wished to share Omar ibn Said's story with the world. And I'm quoting him in an article. He says, I could keep it in my family and pass it down, but whoever has it, has to preserve it. It has to have a greater good and exposure in the world community. It cannot be destroyed in a fire or a flood. He dies after we have acquired him. Derek was fighting cancer mm. and he died um, last year just after he learned that we had purchased the collection. It was as if he carried this burden but this joy and brought this manuscript here to the library as its home, as its permanent home. So I just wanted to see this continuity of those who owned, who passed it on to the next person, then to the next. And Derek is the last one to hold it, and then he brings it here and dies soon after. And that's where it now resides, mm. symbolically. Mm. Yeah. I would say, you know, to um, uh, just uh, add to this, that you know, beyond the fact that it's unique, um, it's also it's also an American story, and and you know, as such, it it, it belongs here, and it's the story of of you know, kind of three components I, I, I would say of the American people: the Africans, the enslaved, and the Muslims, and um, you know, so Omar Said kind of represents you know. Those, those three, and um, he, um, I think you know this this um, uh, manuscript is not a, an artifact that should be displayed, you know, under a glass uh, case. It's a to me, it's a living document that should be translated again and again and interpreted again and again. Um, I don't think we've 
we've seen, you know, so far, you know, the last, um, the last translation and the last uh, interpretation. I think that as it becomes available to many more people, because, uh, um, uh, um, as you mentioned, Mary Jane is going to be, um, it's going to be uh, a scan put online. Um, I'm pretty sure it can still reveal meanings that we are not yet aware of. That, that's really wonderful. Uh, Mary Jane, Sylviane, thank you both so much for your, for your expertise and knowledge and, and, and wisdom into the life and legacy of Omar Ibn Said. It seems to me that it's, just, it's not just an American story. I mean, he, he lived a transatlantic life, and his story really belongs to the world. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. And thanks, Sylvie. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.